This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Jason Kelly. We're right here every day bringing you the latest news from the worlds of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Business Week reporters and editors. And of course, Carol, that's part of a team of 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. And Jason, you can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio every weekday. Or watch us on YouTube by searching Bloomberg Global News. Well, I'm going to confess, I look forward to this every Friday. I do, too. I really do, because I feel like it is my reality check going into the weekend. It arms me with the things that I need to know as I'm talking about this with friends and neighbors. Let's get to it. Dr. Ian Lesbader back with us, Clinical Associate Professor of Medicine for NYU's Langone Medical Center, joining us on the phone from New York City. And as we've talked about, he's been literally on the front lines of this, but also is such a thoughtful uh, practitioner and thinker about this as well. Uh, Ian, it's great to have you back, of course. Thank you, Jason and Carol. Happy Friday. And to you. All right. So where are we right now in New York City? Let's start there because we're talking about reopening on Monday or going to to phase two. But this in the face of some headlines that we're seeing from around the country that are troubling. So set the stage for us and and what we need to be uh, thinking about. Well, I think – You know, New York uh, really is sort of a a study in a pretty successful approach to COVID-19. You know, keeping in mind we don't have any real preventive medicine. The hydroxychloroquine uh, studies really did not uh, wow us. Uh, We don't have amazing treatment. Uh, although we're looking at a number of things, and we can talk about that later, like the dexamethasone or the remdesivir. Mm-hmm. So really, we are uh, reduced, unfortunately, to a lot of what you had mentioned before, Carol, which is face covering, uh, social distancing, you know, using our head to try and minimize uh, the spread. And I think for New York, that worked fairly well. The case numbers are down. Really, in the office, we're returning to 90-plus percent of prior volume, and we're seeing regular patients, whether it's you know heart issues or cholesterol or blood pressure. And really, the number of COVID cases has dropped dramatically. Uh, unfortunately, that's not the case elsewhere in other parts of the country. And we, we sort of knew that this was going to happen as it spread. So Florida, Texas, uh, Arizona, some in California, you know, as as you've announced the numbers, uh, that certainly is not under control by any means. Well, and you know what? Help me here, because I've got a teenager who's driving me a little crazy, Ian, and that is about, you know, the city's opening up. What's the right thing to do? Because I think she's like, it's opening up, Mom. You know, I can see my friends out. You know, we'll wear masks. We'll do social distancing. I mean, how do what's the smart way that we need to preach, uh, approach, excuse me, a city like New York? with this? Well, you know, it's certainly, uh, I, I have to agree with the governor on this. I think it is time and the mayor to uh, to open up. Case numbers are down. It's really hard to justify keeping people indoors. I think they've done well over the last few months. Uh, streets are starting to get busier and certainly outdoor dining. We know outside is better than inside. Uh, certainly the highest risk areas are uh, many people in a closed environment that are either speaking or shouting or singing. So certainly, you know, sports venues or small restaurants would be the highest risk. But if you're sitting outside or you're in a store that is not particularly crowded and people are staying six feet apart and they're wearing face coverings, you know, I think that's a reasonable risk. Unfortunately, there's always going to be some risk. But I think most studies have shown that that uh, 
that if everyone follows that, uh, we should be able to let the virus run its natural course, which eventually should die out. How long that will be, we have to see. Right. And uh, obviously, if we get a vaccine or medication, hopefully that will reduce the time. What about offices? Uh, good question in the offices. You know, uh, I think in bigger offices where, where people have space in between, even the cubes, if people are wearing masks, and we do that in the office uh, here, we wear a mask when we leave our offices or go in the waiting room. Uh, that seems to work well. You screen people before they come in with fever. You ask them, you know, have they had uh, either any exposure? Do they have fever? And you get a, a temperature check. So far, that seems to have worked, and hopefully that will continue to work. Uh, it's probably not going to work perfectly, though. Yeah. So, Ian, I, I got to ask you a question that we've been kicking around in the newsroom, and I feel like it comes up a lot as well. When we look at headlines, especially when we're looking at the national headlines and state headlines, should we be focused on total cases? Should we be focused on hospitalizations? What gives us the best trend line and the best look at sort of where we're headed in the short term? Well, you know, everyone would take a different perspective on this. I, to me, I think, you know, the total cases will, will give us uh, a good clue. You know, we do know at this point that, uh, you know, 80% or over 80% of people who get the virus will either have mild or moderate symptoms. A smaller percent will get fairly sick, and even a smaller percent will need to be hospitalized. And those patients who are hospitalized, uh, need very intensive care or can with oxygen and can spend weeks or, or even months. So that is a very labor intensive, very expensive. We don't really know what separates that subgroup. Uh, yeah. Some people think blood type. Other people think there's some un other underlying uh, immune issues. Um, but all we can do, we're, we're not able to test for who is most at risk other than demographics, older people at higher risk, obesity, hypertension, lung disease. So those people probably should still self-isolate or avoid uh, high-risk situations like um, big rallies in, in Oklahoma. You know, well, if well, you have underlying disease, uh, be careful. So, Ian, talk to us about some of these drugs that we've seen, especially this steroid that is relatively inexpensive and widely used. Right. So, uh, you know, because we don't have a cure for COVID-19, we, we don't have a, a medication, unfortunately, to prevent it. You know, supplements may help. There's some scanty data on that. Uh, vitamin D and some other things may perhaps have a role. Certainly, we know hydroxychloroquine has not panned out. And because when people are sick uh, and critically sick with it, we don't really have a cure, uh, any new data gets uh, very, uh, gets, generates a lot of excitement. And dexamethasone or decadron uh, steroid that's commonly available has really been around for years, and, and uh, doctors who work in the ICU have used steroids on and off with really mixed results. Uh, this uh, study that has not yet been published or peer-reviewed but just released the data was encouraging in reducing uh, deaths anywhere from, say, 20 to 30 percent, but it's used really on the sickest patients, patients who were intubated on breathing machines, so already they're having lung failure, or people who are on um, high-flow oxygen. Uh, my bet is that we will probably, until we get a cure, probably go with a combination, sort of like the HIV combination, but different, remdesivir, probably convalescent plasma early on when people are sick and they're beginning to need oxygen. Hopefully, 
uh, that can be used because we know steroids, if used too early, actually are a problem, right? The steroids are an immunosuppressant. They do decrease inflammation, but we don't want to suppress the body's immune response to the virus either. But when people get more progressively sick with cytokine storm and the body is almost hurting itself by all these inflammatory uh, chemicals, the steroids may provide a little bit of benefit to that. So timing is very important. When do you give convalescent plasma? When do you give steroids? How much do you give? All that really has yet to be worked out. But it sounds like, Ian, you know, the longer this goes on, I mean, a vaccine, as we know, takes time. And even though there's some progress being made, that's not going to be maybe the first line of defense. It sounds like we're going to find things, whether it's uh, dexamethasone or something else, right, as you're talking about, that will help with patients that ultimately come down with the virus. I mean, that's going to be the interim steps, correct? Correct. Yeah, we, we are really going to need to get people through uh, mild, moderate, and severe cases. And again, we don't really know why some people have more severe cases, but yeah. that's why I suspect we will begin to learn what is the timing of remdesivir, what is the timing of steroids. We give blood thinners because one of the ways people unfortunately succumb is clots everywhere, strokes, yeah. uh, pulmonary emboli, kidney, liver. Uh, so how to get this combination of what dose of blood thinner, what dose of antiviral, what dose of steroid, and when to time it is going to be uh, challenging, and that's going to take time. And we're going to need to buy some time until those vaccines come out. And then, of course, how effective will the vaccines be? Right. Until those are distributed and used on a large number of people, we're really not going to know how effective that is. And in the meantime, wear a mask, right? Exactly. Well, use, use common sense that we've talked about. So you yeah. got to tell us about what's going on in uh, Tulsa this weekend. And we have, we've got a, a story out, you know, Trump's rally, hand scientists, a test case for super spreader event. Sorry, that's a mouthful. But basically, this is going to be a big test case, right, of a lot of people in a small space. I'm guessing not everybody's going to be wearing masks. And we will see how well the population does when it comes to the virus. This is definitely a first-time event with this number of people, uh, and I think we will have to see what happens. If it were me, I would wear a mask. Uh, if certainly I had underlying medical problems, heart disease, lung disease, diabetes, obesity, I don't think I would risk it. You can be a supporter, which is great, but I, you have to use prudence not to put yourself at risk. Uh, there may be other ways to show support. Um, but if you are going to go, uh, be prudent and uh, definitely wear a face covering and, you know, try not to uh, sit next to someone who's yelling or shouting or coughing. Uh, that's going to be a challenge in a big arena. Right. And the outcome right. will tell us a lot about Absolutely. where we are the virus. Absolutely. All right. Dr. Ian Lespater, thank you so much. Clinical Associate Professor of Medicine, NYU's Langone Medical Center here in New York City. We always appreciate catching up with you. Have a good and safe weekend and look forward to catching up with you for the latest next week. We're listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Jason Kelly, Carol Masser. Big food section. Yeah, go for it. It's All exciting. Right. Yeah, so there's a food section in the, in the magazine this week. It's on newsstands. It's on the Bloomberg. It's online at Bloomberg.com. And there's a bunch of stories on pricey greens that are doing well in the COVID area, uh, COVID era, excuse me, um, but so are deadly U.S. meat plants, which is a really serious story. And then, of course, the uh, I feel like the pursuit of flour, and there are those that are benefiting it, uh, benefiting um, because of it. Let's get into it with Bloomberg Businessweek editor Sylvia 
Killingsworth. She's with us on the phone in New York City, along with Jill Weber, on the phone in Brooklyn. I'm sorry. I'm actually eating lunch at the same time. So <laughs> <laughs> I'm trying to get through this. It, it's Carol's own food issue going <laughs> on right now. It's my own food issue. Um, Jill, let's start with you, because um, you guys devoted you know, a bunch of the magazine to it. Yeah, this was a feature well takeover, and it was, it's was it been a, uh, an idea that we've talked about for a while, and then all of a sudden we found ourselves in the pandemic basically mm. obsessing about where our next meal was always going to come from. And for a while there, it was really dire, right? Yeah. And uh, we couldn't, nobody could get yeast, nobody could get flour. Uh, it was making us reevaluate supply chains. And frankly, a lot of those things, I think, have some long-term impact. And Sylvia, um, uh, who, who we adore and has um, such good instincts with all things food, sort of started to speak up and say, like, the time is now. We need to put together a package. And what she kind of put together was, like, we used the the inspiration of a dinner plate here, and we kind of, like, took a little journey around the dinner plate and kind of talked about food groups. And we've got stories about flour and a milk-inspired story and a meat-inspired story and a fruit, produce-inspired stories. And all of them, I just thought, were just next-level good. So, Sylvia, you want to talk about what, what stood out to you as we were putting this together? Yeah, absolutely. So, um, you know, one of my favorites, as you mentioned, is the flower story. And I think a lot of people in the very beginning of quarantine um, noticed that all of a sudden everyone was talking about growing their sourdough starter and baking their bread. And it was this kind of funny, you know, home home ec revolution where everyone was taking care of their own um, bread starters. And it really translated to the grocery shelves, a real run on flour. Everyone was sort of, you know, I can't buy any yeast, I can't buy any flour. So we took this opportunity to look at one of them. Um, you know, it's one of the oldest companies, um, flower companies in America. It was started um, during George Washington's first term as president, King Arthur Flower. Um, and it's really the Cadillac of flowers. It's considered very, you know, a slightly higher quality than gold metal. Um, it has a really consistent protein content. And also for a while there, you couldn't find it in the grocery store. So we called them up and said, you know, how did you handle this? They told us they saw a 600% increase in sales in the month of March. And they told us about their relationships with their mills, who are all in the United States. And we were able to photograph a mill in Kansas um, where they actually turned the wheat into the actual grains into the flour. Um, so that was a really nice way into that sort of trend. We've been uh, consuming tons of flour. I got a few bakers uh, here in my house. Uh, let's talk about produce, if we can. These pricey greens. I, I really liked this story because you know it's it, all of these in many ways are, are supply demand. Talk to us about these indoor farms, Sylvia. Right. So this was a way to look at you know what I did was I went to Dina Shanker who wrote the story and I said you know what what's happening what is how is the pandemic affecting farming and specifically produce farming. And I had her call up, um, you know, basically she called up a couple of different farms and talked to them about the issue, the issues that they're facing. And one of the most interesting um, things was this idea of um, the migrant labor shortages, which all of the produce farms are seeing anyway in the California Central Valley. Um, but one of the other farms that she contacted was a sort of more modern hydroponic uh, greenhouse grower. And, you know, because the greenhouses, they use less water, um, they're now all stationed, you know, close to the cities where they deliver the greens to, and they use a lot less um, labor, much less migrant labor, so they're a lot less affected by some of the issues that have come up during COVID. 
Um, so the, the farm that she spoke to in California is called Tally Farms, um, and they were able to sort of let us in on their operation and tell us, you know, how were they implementing social distancing? Is it difficult? You know, have there been outbreaks? You know, all of the different measures that they're using to try to, you know, combat the virus. But ultimately, you know, with an old-fashioned, you know, if there is some mechanical stuff involved, but an old-fashioned farm with people out in the dirt picking things up with their hands and being really close to each other, there's just a lot more transmission risk. Yeah, they talk um, about you, they talk about exactly. God. They talk about Gotham Greens in there. I've done a piece on them, um, Viraj mm-hmm. Puri, who has a, a greenhouse on top of a Whole Foods out there in Brooklyn. And it's just pretty remarkable how they're doing it. And you do wonder how much, you know, we can scale up on that and, and what it's what it's meant certainly in this environment. So I feel like those are the more positive stories. you got to talk about the meat plants um, because, yeah. Sylvia, I feel like those stories are really disturbing. And I don't feel like it's getting any better. Yeah. So we've, you know... We've been reporting a lot on all of the breakouts at meat plants. I think everyone is familiar with all of the troubles at the Smithfield plant at Cargill. Um, You know, this is just sort of one of these things that has become so accepted and so common. You hear every day, every week in the news, you know, there's another outbreak of hundreds of people at a meatpacking plant. And I wanted to know, you know, what is it about these meatpacking plants that makes it so, um, you know, likely to become a hotspot? So one one reason for that is definitely, you know, we've seen a lot of, um, you know, just the, the, the sheer number of people and how close they're standing on the line to each other, but also organizationally what's going on. And, you know, we dug into this with Peter Waldman, um, Polly Mossens, and Lydia Mulvaney, and they basically found a sort of several different reasons for how this industry has been very under-regulated um, over the years. So OSHA, um, which is supposed to deal with all of the claims, has, between the years of 2009 and 2017, really been scaled back under the Trump administration. There's fewer OSHA inspectors today than there were 40 years ago, and yet there are more and more injuries and more and more illnesses being spread. So that's part of it. Another part of it is the um, the sort of political angle. Um, a lot of these meatpacking plants are in red states, um, with uh, Republican governors who are being lobbied by these different meatpacking plants. And, of course, there's, you know, there's four big meatpacking plants which control 80%, so the consolidation is a big part of that. And then finally, you know, we, the consumers, are not exempt from this. We are you know, the ones who are you know, gobbling up of all of this meat, a record volume of meat at record low prices. Yeah. So there's, there's absolutely an appetite for cheap meat. Um, so, you know, in addition to being outraged about these conditions, we, you know, have to turn this on ourselves and say, okay, like, but we're the ones who we're are buying it. Because yeah, course, absolutely. Exactly, the meat companies are going to turn, turn around and say, well, we're just, we're meeting. You're asking for it. Demand. Yeah, totally. Exactly. All right. Sylvia Killingsworth, so good to talk to you. Uh, a great, great uh, set of features in the magazine this week. Check it out online on the terminal and in the magazine. Sylvia Killingsworth is an editor at Bloomberg Businessweek, joined by Joel Weber, editor of Bloomberg Businessweek. One story we didn't get to talk about, which I love because we're part of this trend, the return of the milkman. I love it. I love it. So check that one out yeah, uh, as well. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly on Bloomberg Radio.
So in today's edition of Business Week Economics, we want to catch up with Bloomberg News economics reporter Steve Matthews. Uh, He's on the phone from Atlanta. He had an interview with Atlanta Fed President Raphael Bostic, who was, if you did not know, uh, the first black Fed president in the central bank's 106-year history. So I think he doesn't talk a lot about race, but he did with Steve Matthews. So Steve, so delighted to have you here with Jason and me. Tell me, tell us about your conversation. Yeah, it was really fascinating because when Raphael became head of the Atlanta Fed three years ago uh, and he was asked about, you know, being the first black president, which it's still an amazing thing. We've gone 106 years and there's one, just one uh, in the 12 bank, 12 Federal Reserve banks. But but his attitude at that time was he really didn't want to talk about it much. It's like I want people to judge me on on how I do and and. And my legacy is going to be how I do the job. And he was not really talking about racism. And things kind of changed with the uh, with the uh, George Floyd killing in Minneapolis and all of the national uh, protests following that, it, as well as what's happened with the virus and the fact that uh, uh, the biggest uh, economic losers in the uh, the current economic slump have been lower income and minority workers. And all of that kind of came together, and he he felt more compelled to talk about racism and talk about race in America. And it was fascinating because, uh, he, you know, you, you do an interview with Fed presidents, and you kind of uh, are used to them being super prepared beforehand, and they have PR people who give them talking points. And you ask interesting questions, and they go to their talking points, and it's very kind of like uh, stale. And with Raphael, he was very revealing. I mean, he was talking about being uh, black in America and the fact that he had been racially profiled, uh, which is not, you know, it's not shocking because it's like that happens to a huge number of black men in particular. You drive so-called driving while black, uh, but it's still interesting to, to hear him talk about it and that he's also a bird watcher. And when the recent uh, video came out uh, of the uh, New York uh, in, in Central Park of the bird watcher who's black, uh, where a, a white woman called the police uh, on him and made a false police report. Uh, he, he saw that video. He said he found it chilling because he says wherever he goes, when he goes shopping, uh, when he goes bird watching, uh, you know, just doing any ordinary things, He's always aware that he's black and there's that, you know, he has a degree from Stanford. He has a degree from Harvard. He's an accomplished uh, executive, but he's always kind of worried that he's going to be stereotyped uh, as just a black person in a bad way. And it's just kind of, you know, in a way, it's kind of heartbreaking to hear that. I mean, that, you know, that's where we are. But he said that's where America is today. And it, it's just really uh kind of, uh, in, a, in a way, we know that, but it's also sort of stunning to hear of somebody of that stature saying that's how things are now. Well, and Steve, one of the things you, you do such a nice job with in this piece, and and he did during the interview, was talk about the the region that you're in, and it's my home region, as you well know, you and I have worked together for a long time, and, and sort of 
having the responsibility for that region, a number of states of which are majority black in terms of their population, but also his response toward the end of the interview about going to Atlanta, taking that job. Walk us through a little bit about that, because Atlanta is such an important city. And I say it not just because it's my hometown, but it is such a critical city in all of this. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, Atlanta is the home of the civil rights movement, home of Martin Luther King Jr., uh, as well as, you know, a number of other civil rights uh, uh, leaders over over the years. And uh, it, it has an important place in history and Georgia and, uh, you know, Georgia, Louisiana, Alabama, Mississippi, Louis, you know, all of those the southern states have huge proportions of, of black residents. And, uh, and and there's kind of a stereotype. There's a lot of racism in the south. And, you know, he said that when he had been the uh, uh, leading uh, University of uh, Southern California professor of economics when he was hired by the Atlanta Fed, and he said that the reaction of all of his friends when he uh, decided to, to take the job was, oh, my God, you know, you're moving to Georgia I mean, it's like, you know, like this was, you know, kind of uh, Hooterville or, or yeah. somewhere that this was the backwoods. And it's like a place that is not very welcoming to African-Americans. And his attitude was, um, you know, racism is everywhere every day. It's not a, it's not a problem for the South. It's not a problem for California. It's not a problem for the Northeast. It's a problem everywhere. Yeah. And it's like you're going to have to deal with it wherever you are. And, uh, you know, and he says he says he's loved his experience, you know, by and large in, in this in the South. I feel like, Steve, we've heard that a lot. It's an American problem. It's not one individual. It's not one institution. It's an American problem. Just quickly, just got about 30 seconds left here. I mean, the Fed universe, you know, you have to lead by doing. And I feel like what about minorities within the Fed institution? They've got a long way to go just quickly. Yes, they still do have a long way to go. And, and you, you hear uh, you heard Jay Powell talk about that today and earlier in the week, and they're very much aware of it. And, uh, and it's a problem really for the economics profession as well, not just the Fed. Yeah. All right. Well, this is a terrific piece of journalism, and it really is. And, and not to gas Steve too much, but like he's been doing this for a long time. And this is why he's so good is because he lands these sorts of interviews. He develops these sorts of relationships because I can tell you, Rafael Bostic is not going to sit down with just anyone to give this sort of interview. Nope. And Steve is sort of the is the sort of thoughtful reporter and journalist that we have. So kudos to him because let me tell you, it is a must read. And you learn a lot about Rafael Bostic and about his job, about the Fed uh, and the South. So uh, can't recommend it highly enough. Steve Matthews, economics reporter for Atlanta, for Bloomberg, joining us from Atlanta. Yeah, the important conversations that we need to be having. And it was great to have uh, Steve get that uh, specifically. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly on Bloomberg Radio. This is always my favorite interview every time it happens. It's not often that you get to introduce yourself, but here exactly. you go. Well, introduce a better version of myself, <laughs> or at least a better version of my name. Jason Kelly, the founder and CEO of Ginkgo Bioworks, is back with us on the phone from Boston. I mean, it's just funny every time, Jason. I'm not, I, I can't yeah. lie. I can't lie. We How are you? Again. We meet again. We meet again. Uh, How's it going? Doing well. Doing yeah. Well. So, 
you guys are right in the midst of this. We caught up with you a couple months ago, and we should point out you were on the Bloomberg 50. Like, you are doing some incredible work. Remind us where you are, especially when it comes to the current crisis and the efforts to, to help with the COVID-19 response. Yeah, so, you know, in brief, uh, you know, Ginkgo's facility here in Boston, about 120,000 square feet of automated robotics to do lab work. And uh, we use that for genetic engineering of cells. But what we realized early on with COVID was there was going to be a big uh, need uh, around uh, screening for COVID-19 in the, in the general population. And so that's what we've been working on, trying to bring online uh, really low-cost screening-based tests that you could use to open workplaces and schools. Uh, going into the fall here uh, as we're living with this disease. How's it going? You know, it, it, it's it's a tough problem, right? Yeah. So, so I, I think this is actually kind of a confusing, you know, situation for people because, you know, there was a lot of talk about testing early on in the in the pandemic, right? And you had, you know, I, I kind of think of it like a nuclear bomb went off. There was a, there was a shock wave. We all went in our bunkers uh, and we needed like clinical testing because people were showing up in hospitals and they needed to know, do I or don't I have COVID? And their doctor had to make decisions. Well, well now the shockwave's over and it's like the fallout period, right? And we're coming out of our bunkers. We want to go back to work and school. And, and, the, and the issue is we don't need testing now at, at the hospital. You need it at the school and workplace. And, it, and, and the customer is not a doctor. It's the CEO of a company, the dean of a university, the mayor of a, of a city that's trying to make decisions uh, about how to control outbreaks. Uh, and so it's a totally different um, uh, scale and cost of testing, you know, um, compared to a clinical clinical testing. And so help us understand how it works, because I think that there is also some mystery. I have not been tested and there's some mystery, I think, around it, especially as we read about sports teams going back and they're going to be tested frequently or they're going to go down to Orlando or whatever it is. Like where are we headed in terms of the types of tests and the efficacy of them, Jason? Yes, great question. Um, so, so there's two, you know, there's kind of two tests you'll read about just to give you a little more background. There's like an, like what's called an antibody test uh, that tells you have I had COVID-19 before? Okay, um, did you have the disease? Leave that aside because most people in this country, probably 90, 90 to 95 percent, haven't had it. Right. So, so now the question is, do I have it right now? Right. And again, the reason this is important is, yeah, like you're talking about, you, you know, places that congregate want, want to be careful that the people coming in don't have it, but also just people running businesses, right? I mean, Ford had to close the F-150 plant. Tyson had to close, you know, six percent of the country's um, poultry production. Um, Apple's closing stores. You know, like that. That's a. Uh, that's because an outbreak can happen in your workplace and you lose business continuity, right? And so the, the way you can protect against that is if you're regularly testing your workers with a screen, a low-cost screen. Uh, and that technology is what's getting developed now um, by places like us and others. Uh, and, in fact, the FDA has just now put out guidance in the last week for these new screening-based tests uh, as compared to the, the more expensive clinical diagnostics. So where are we? Okay, so that's part of it. The other thing is a vaccine, and I know you guys – are supporting a bunch of, I think, efforts along those lines as well. How do you see it? What's the realistic timeline on this? Yeah, so we've been working with a number of the um, folks in the nucleic acid vaccine space, the DNA or RNA vaccine in places like uh, we were, we're working with Moderna, for example, here mm -hmm. in, in Boston area. Um, you know, I think there, there's this, a great program being run by the federal government, uh, Operation Warp Speed, to try to get get manufactured approved vaccines around the end of the year. I mean, that, that is a heroic effort, right? And so we're all hopeful, but I think we should also all be planning, you know, 
that it could be uh, could be next summer that we're realistically seeing these things. You know, I, I think that should be in our in our heads as we think about how to how to safely reopen. Um, and, and you know, the thing I think that people miss on on the testing, just to flag it, is if you had enough tests, right? If we went from the 400,000 clinical tests we have today to more like five or 10 million um, screens per day, we could we could put this thing to bed before a vaccine comes out. Yeah. Right. If you do enough testing and isolation, you know, it, it's spread by contact. Right? right. You have to know who are the right people to stay home. But what's, ho- what's so, wait, wait. So yeah. this is really important. We've only got about 30 seconds left here, Jason. What's holding that back? Because that's what everybody says. That's the answer. Yeah. So I think it's two things. So one, the Just private quickly. sector. Yeah. yeah. Private sector CEOs should be looking to, to do this for their own workers. And then the U.S. government coming up with the, the new stimulus bill should put spend 25 to 50 billion dollars on screening, not testing, not clinical testing, but screening for the workplace and schools. That'll do it. Then we'd be out of this thing. If only the world had more smarter Jason Kellys. I'm just saying that I think it would be a Maybe better place. Maybe we should ship this audio file and send it to the government. Yeah, and exactly. Just blast it out. Are, social are media. Jason Kellys saving the world? Who's to say? I, I'm just saying. That was the solution right there. Exactly. Jason Kelly, CEO and co-founder of Ginkgo uh, BioWorks, joining us on the phone from Boston. Really important conversation. I'm driving in my car. I turn on the radio. How about you let me drive? Oh, no, 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 no. Who's gonna drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive home. Excuse me, I wanna drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That punk music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. It is time for the drive to the close. And with us on this Friday is Kevin Miller, Chief Investment Officer at Evaluator Funds, on the phone from Minneapolis. $635 million in assets under management. Kevin, nice to have you here with us. How's your world? Uh, world's good. I mean, uh, we're coming back strong yeah. out of the out of the March twenty third drop, and and things are looking good. How's Minneapolis? Uh, it's recovering. Uh, we're getting things put back together, and mm. uh, it's a day by day process. But uh, you know, I believe in in our community and in the people that are bringing it around. So I think we'll 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 work our way towards the top again. And I do uh, wonder, Kevin, you know, as you try and sort of factor in so many of the things that are going on in the world, especially given that it was, you know, kind of at your front door there, you know, I wonder how you think about these various crises that we're facing and how you factor them in to your investment thesis. Yeah, you know, we're always going to be faced with uh, global and domestic crises. I mean, uh, you think back, uh, we used to worry about Russia being, you know, uh, a problem with us, and then that kind of transitioned to Iran, and now our focus is more on China. Um, and, and, you know, every day you get up when you manage money, you look at what you hold, and you decide whether what you hold is has the best opportunity for growth going forward. And while you look at these uh, crises that we are in uh, with regard to the recent riots, etc. Uh, you, you look way beyond that. I mean, you're looking out six months at the shortest, typically one, two, or three years. And we take more of a global or a, a bigger picture perspective. And so while that can uh, stunt your short-term performance, uh, we're looking more at free cash flow and, 
and and things of that nature that are going to provide nice earnings down the road, and um, and and so that's what we focus more on, I guess. In that are you regard. are you worried that much though about outlook and visibility? Because it seems like so many out there don't have a lot of visibility. So how do you? What are the numbers that you have to kind of cling to? <laughs> this is a this is a unique time. I mean, yeah. if you look at um, you look at you know uh, recessions in the past, they were typically started as a result of, of slowing demand. And this is the first recession I've ever lived through where it's been a, a turn off of the supply spigot. And so we're turning that spigot back on. And that's why when we're getting bad news on economic you know, uh, fundamentals, uh, the market is still going up because it's anticipating the, the growth that's going to come as long as we anticipate the demand is close to what it was back in February before we started our drop. Um, we're looking at, you know, after July, at the end, after the end of July, I think we're going to start seeing things pick up even more substantially uh, as a result of the uh, unemployment program starting to come to an end. And so, uh, Kevin, what do you make of what's going on on the healthcare side? Because I feel like generally people's uh, inclination may be, all right, if people are investing literally in a vaccine and therapeutics and all these different things, surely there's money to be made there. Just being very straightforward uh how do you read that yeah it's uh i kind of think you know <laughs> we we've got the belmont stakes coming up this weekend and the belmont is is part of a triple crown and, and, and in, in essence we kind of have a triple crown race when it comes to covid19 and that there's a race to find out who has the best best uh testing the best treatment and who will come up with the vaccine and as a individual investor i think it's really hard to uh, to identify an individual company and pick one because some are going to come out of the gate great, but they may not make it to the finish line. And what I would suggest is looking at some ETFs that, that focus either in one of those races or one that's trying to, trying to touch on all of them. And, and I would prefer to see an individual investor look to using ETFs as opposed to looking to use uh, you know, some type of individual stock selection uh, because when you get into biogenetics and things of that nature, you can have uh, great performance, but you can have substantial substantial loss, if not total loss as well. Yeah, it's going to be interesting. You're right, because there's so many different uh, biotech and healthcare firms kind of chasing or drug firms chasing after, you know, after, excuse me, excuse me, after solutions, uh, Kevin, at this point. And there will be a lot of losers in this race. But as we talked with uh, Dr. Lusbader from NYU Langone, Earlier, I mean, we do know that there's going to be probably the need for multiple types of treatment, not just a vaccine, but also treatments that can, you know, go after people who have mild cases, moderate cases, and really severe cases of the virus. I mean, we're going to need a lot of treatments. Yeah, and I think that's why you're seeing so many companies chasing the vaccine, because there's not just going to be one vaccine that's going to be the cure-all for everyone. Uh, And, you know, right now, Pursuing the treatment route is probably a little bit more less less expensive to get to, and it's going to be quicker. Uh, but ultimately, the uh, the brass ring is going to be uh, getting the vaccine. I mean, you're seeing Pfizer, Glaxo, Gilead, uh, Moderna. I, I mean, you're seeing. Um, I heard Merck is getting involved in it now mm-hmm. too. And you're 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 going to have multiple firms, organizations offering their version of the vaccine because what might work for me may not work for you and uh so you may need a, an alternative to what you know is functional based on my genetics so uh, i think you know a year from now uh 
uh, things are going to be feeling a lot better. I think mm. I do believe we'll have multiple ma- vaccines available by that time. And Kevin, just last question for you, only about a minute left. You know, when you read the headlines about, you know, infections increasing across the country, hospitalizations uh, increasing, what do you pay the most attention to from a trend line perspective? Well, we look at, you know, from from that perspective, we obviously see uh, cases increasing, but we look at the case to hospitalization ratio mm. and then the case to hospitalization to uh, fatality ratio. And, um, you know, I, I think the one thing that I'd like is a little bit more granular information coming out of the media to give people an understanding of these are the people that are more susceptible, here's where the claims are coming from, and here's what's driving it. And um, every day that passes, we get that much uh, closer to a better test, we get that much yeah. better closer to a treatment, and then obviously a vaccine. So. Now, it's a really interesting point. I think that we're, we're all trying to get smarter and smarter on the data and, and what to look at. And, and that question of what we should be looking at, I think, is one that's certainly evolving. Uh, nice to catch up with you. Kevin Miller, Chief Investment Officer for Evaluator Funds, joining us on the phone from Minneapolis. Thanks so much for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Download the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. And of course, you can always listen to our radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio or watch us on YouTube by searching Bloomberg Global News.